adolescents are an at-risk population, and that'll be the focus of this um, first lesson in the first chapter of the course. So we're going to take a look at young people from the perspective of neuroscience or brain research. In the following course, we'll introduce a neuroscientific perspective. Throughout the course, we're going to use the analogy, but also the real life issue with young people and driving and their cars. In terms of the analogy, when I was doing research for this course, I was surprised how often adolescent experts use the construction of a car in order to explain the way young people's brains are developing. Over and over again, neuroscientists or experts in adolescence would speak about how the adolescent brain, the car, is primed to go from zero to 60 in a few seconds flat, while at the same time it has the restraint or the brakes of a bicycle or an old-fashioned jalopy. Using the car analogy throughout is going to help me remind teachers and parents and frontline workers with youth that what we're talking about is very high stakes. I mean, it's one thing to know that adolescent brains are a major challenge in the classroom, but it's quite another to be reminded that the things that may frustrate a teacher or parent are the exact same aspects of brain development that put our young people's lives all too often on the line. Educators, I believe, have a unique and powerful role to influence the learning, but also the safety of adolescents. And it's a very big responsibility. And I think the more information we have about their brains, the more we can be those people that can save them. We will outline in the course the changes that are going on in the adolescent brain. We'll, we'll circle back to it with each lesson and repeat, actually, because one of the ways the brain is seen to learn most effectively is through repetition at timed intervals. Then we'll, at the end of the lesson, we'll talk um, about cultivating essential skills for youth and for the teachers and parents and frontline workers who are engaged with working with them. So the developing brain puts young people at risk. Now, it's, it's common knowledge, it's very well known that from infancy, so zero to three years old, um, a toddler's brain, a baby's brain, is undergoing significant development. So the first three years, and experts like Dr. John Medina will say really it's the first five years, are well known as a time when what and how children learn can be foundational and critical for the rest of their lives. Now, what's less known is the same is true for the adolescent years. And we tend to think of adolescence as correlated with the teen years, but that's actually inaccurate from a brain point of view. Um, experts see adolescence as beginning with puberty, and because puberty is starting earlier in some children, um, an expert like Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, for example, starts adolescence at around 10 or 11, and um, it is seen to go up until the age of 24 or 25. So that's our young people at work. That's our young people in vocational programs or at university or college. So we tend to think of them as adults, but from a brain point of view, their brain is not yet fully developed and it's not yet fully mature. It's not an adult brain, even though they look physically like an adult. So we have windows of opportunity, which is the phrase that the experts use. Two of the most important, um, and they are equally important, windows of opportunity are toddlerhood, zero to three, and adolescence, let's say 10 or 11 to 24, 25. So this is critical for teachers and parents and all who work with children and youth to know, because these windows are immensely important. So in the following course, we're going to examine the less discussed adolescent phase of brain development. 
One of the key things to remember about the brain of these young people is that they belong to the world of biology and they're shaped by evolution. So the brain is still operating according to powerful drives to survive and procreate. And adolescence, um, puberty triggers the brain with the required courage and curiosity to leave the comfort home, the comfort zone of home and seek to be accepted by other tribes whereby a mate could ultimately be secured. And this is why adolescent brains, this is why young people are so hypersensitive because they've got to learn to be masters at social approval and social acceptance and interacting with a foreign tribe. Um, and so their brain is hypersensitized because it's so important for them. Whereas, you know, from an adult in the modern world who, you know, they're no longer doing this um, as part of their lives, they're at school and they're at home and we can't understand why they're so sensitive. So that would just be a quick example. So from 13 to 24, neuroscientists have learned that during adolescence, the brain undergoes a major shift from childhood that gives young people their sense of adventure, their risk-taking, their reward-seeking, their restlessness. And it's, it's really what's happening on the biological brain level that's giving young people the courage to leave the safety of the family cave and the tribe and set off into new territory. So of course, imagine giving that brain a car and what it's going to do with the reward seeking and sense of adventure and so on, this desire to leave home. So we have to keep thinking about when we talk about brains, we have to talk about evolution and, and the chronology. So, you know, this sense of adventure and risk taking and reward seeking, it'd be all fine if the brain was back, you know, in the early days and that we all lived in caves, that would be okay. If the young person was walking and they were maybe out in the Serengeti carrying a bow and an arrow, but think of it, Think of this kind of brain with a young person at 16 or 17 or 18 who gets behind the wheel of a car. And you realize very quickly that this brain stage they're in is gonna put themselves, as well as everyone else on the road, into a lot of danger. Now, less dangerous, but still challenging, this brain stage makes it really difficult to engage young people sometimes in a classroom whose brains really don't care very much about math or science and learning a second language. So this is a big challenge for teachers. We have to find ways to galvanize that adventure brain, that risk-taking, reward-seeking brain. And that's what this course is a lot going to be about. So Dr. Daniel Siegel, who's the author of Brainstorm, he's the author of many books, but one of his key books for this course is Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain. He highlights the immense danger of this period in a young person's life. And he explains that youth are, quote, three times more likely to suffer serious injury or death during this time than, than they are in childhood or than they will be in adulthood. So as a teacher, if you find yourself working double time to get your teenage students to focus or to care about their schoolwork and it feels like a losing battle, it's not you and it's not them that's at fault. We still live in a, a and work in an education system that's really not designed for adolescent brains at all. In fact, um, Dr. John Medina says in his book that if, if we were going to design a place that's utterly antithetical to the brain, we would design a school. So we, this is the kind of update that we, we need to press reset on what we do now that we have all this knowledge about neuroscience. We, we should be making significant changes. So the key is that harnessing this stage of brain development, which is so intense that it puts our young people at risk, is a challenge, but 
it's also something that we can start to work with instead of work against, which is what we do far too much of right now. So I'm hoping that when everybody in taking this course understands really just how high, sta how high the stakes are, that there are life and death, um, you'll walk away from a course like this um, wanting to know more and wanting to become a very powerful influence and educator for young people and anyone else who works with them about what's going on in their brains. So understanding the brain's role in safety is crucial, especially for teens and young adults who are learning to drive during a time of major brain development. It actually puts them at extreme risk for serious injury or fatality. So factoring in neuroscientific knowledge about developing brains surely is going to assist us in keeping young people safer. Dr. Siegel explains that scientists who study this time of brain development recognize that it is not by chance and it is not their fault. It's a phase where the brain is pushing youth to explore, take risks and venture forth. It's absolutely natural, but it can result in permanent harm in this modern world we have created around them. So in order to shine a spotlight on just how dangerous this time is for young people and others with whom um, they, they inadvertently harm, Dr. Siegel tries to, to really convey this in this section of his book on how high the risks are um, because of brain development and what does he do? He uses a story of a, an accident that personally affected him, a car crash. So a fatal crash uh, really impacted his life because it took the life of his favorite professor at medical school. And the driver who killed the, the doctor, his favorite professor at medical school, um, was a 19-year-old and he was in a brand new sports car. The adolescent brain, remember, is seeking rewards like the thrill of speeding and the rush of acceleration, but they have the power to kill someone when they're in a car. It's that simple and it's that terrible. And so the doctor, the professor, this wonderful man is now dead, and the young man, the driver, is now in prison. So Dr. Siegel adds to this tragic story the fact that the 19-year-old driver had already shown his risky conduct to be very dangerous by crashing into a tree. So ask yourself, if you were the parents of this young driver, what would you do? How would you keep him safe and others safe when clearly his brain was not able to handle driving a car? Now, of course, our mindset is to say to ourselves, you can understand this, oh my goodness, he had such an important lesson. He learned that if he speeds, he could crash. He could wreck his car, he could hurt himself, he could hurt somebody else. He will never do it again. He learned that lesson. That's not how the adolescent brain works. It is constantly driving these young people to risk take and to seek rewards. And it will bypass its knowledge, even forget that it had a terrible crash, a frightening, terrifying, hard lesson learned crash two weeks ago. That's why we've got to work with this risk-taking, reward-seeking brain and not try to just assume that it's like an adult brain, because it is not. So the 19-year-old's parents tragically replaced his sports car. They replaced the car that he smashed into a, a tree with and they gave him a new one. And that was the one that killed Dr. Siegel's beloved teacher at medical school. Dr. Siegel concludes with a sobering statement, and I mean, if there's one takeaway from this course that you have, this has got to be it. The period from 12 to 24 is the most dangerous time of our lives. So what is going on in adolescent brains? Dr. Lawrence Steinberg is the author of Age of Opportunity, Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence, namely neuroscience, explains that the part of an adolescent's brain that's involved in excitement and heightened emotions is going through the phase of intense development. However, the part of the brain that 
slows down their reactions, that calms down their emotions, that checks their impulses, that rationally weighs the benefits and risks, that part of the brain is majorly under construction. We're gonna talk a lot more about that. So our 19-year-old that had had the big car accident two weeks before, the part of his brain that should have said, you know, speeding, probably not a good idea, rapid acceleration around corners, remember the tree, consequences, not a good idea, let's calm down. That part of the brain is, is not mature. It's under construction. And this is why it fails to help young people. So Dr. Steinberg's real, like one of his major approaches in his book, which I highly recommend, is that essentially we misunderstand the adolescent brain, we adults. And that's really what we want to change in this course. We want to start to understand better the adolescent brain so that we can make better decisions to keep them safe and keep them learning and keep them happy and so on. But safety really is the priority. So Dr. Steinberg explains that our wrong assumptions, quote, lead parents to make mistakes they could have avoided, schools to ignore the cultivation of essential skills, and legislators to even pass misguided laws. And those who hope to influence adolescents with their messages to use strategies that are doomed to fail. And we're gonna talk more about that later in the course. You'll see there was, we're gonna take specifically look at a governmental ad campaign and why it failed. So the goal of this course is going to be the cultivation of essential skills. Um, what Dr. Steinberg says at present we're failing to do. And we're gonna try and choose a different way of doing it by building from a foundation of neuroscientific research into the adolescent brain. So Dr. Steinberg says, it's like driving, a, to, to be in an adolescent brain is like driving a car with a sensitive gas pedal and bad brakes. This is why the brain goes from zero to 60 really quick. And this is why when you hit the brakes, it's like hitting the brakes of a bicycle or an old jalopy. So this doesn't just affect our young people as they learn how to drive. It can lead to all kinds of risky and reckless behavior. And the more we build young people's brain capacity then for self-regulation, controlling, um, managing, subduing this very um, kind of risk-seeking, reward-seeking brain, the more we're going to be able to help our young people rein in this stage of brain arousal. Dr. Steinberg is concerned we don't really understand what's going on in the adolescent brain and so we make way too many mistakes around keeping our youth safe, focused on their future, or even just plain healthy. Like Dr. Siegel, Dr. Steinberg also illustrates this failure on the part of society, again using a tragic car accident as his example. It's high stakes. So he tells the story of a young man who had a wonderful future ahead of him as a student and an athlete and a citizen. Just a fantastic kid. Teenager goes to his friend's house and he has a couple of beers. He is not drunk, not even remotely. His friends weren't concerned about his driving. It never even crossed their mind. When the police checked this young man's blood alcohol levels, they were not above the limit. So our assumptions, the way we think, we think he's fine. However, as Dr. As Dr. Steinberg explains, the two beers were more than enough to impact his developing brain. Adolescent brains are much more susceptible to alcohol and drugs. So what happened was he hit a woman and killed her and the judge sent him to jail for five years. And that was only because Dr. Steinberg intervened. He was brought in as medical expert and he fought and fought and fought to keep this kid out of a life sentence. The judge wanted to send the boy to jail for the rest of his life and to teach other people a young lesson by doing it. So 
You can see a number of wrong assumptions about the adolescent brain that happen in the courtroom, that happen with the police, that happen with the limits that we put on young people in drinking, how the friends interpreted it, how the, the driver interpreted it. We all thought he was gonna be safe, but in actual fact, it only takes two beers, or maybe even just one, to alter the adolescent brain enough, not the adult brain, the adolescent brain enough to lead to something as tragic as this woman's death. So when Dr. Steinberg said that the developing brain has a sensitive gas pedal, he's describing the limbic system. And the limbic system, I'm sure you've heard of it, it's located in the center of the brain. And it's, I mean, the brain is super interrelated, but for the sake of being able to talk about it, we talk about it in, in parts and areas and has, you know, it has the specific function of X. Um, the neuroscientists would say, that's artificial, you can't really do that, but we can do it for the sake of education. So the limbic system is, is interrelated with all kinds of other aspects of the brain and other aspects of the brain are deeply involved in emotions. But we're gonna talk about that area for now as a way to contrast it, like use it as the sensitive gas pedal, this emotional area in the brain, the limbic system, and in order to contrast it with the prefrontal cortex, which we're gonna talk about in a moment. So this part of the brain in adolescence from 12 to 24, it's much more easily aroused, the, the emotional center of the brain. And this is why our lovely children suddenly become moody teenagers, or you know, one minute they're furious, you sort of haven't really done anything wrong, but they're yelling at you, or, they're, or the next thing you know, they're crying. Um, they have these incredible um, spikes or roller coaster of emotions. And Dr. Steinberg describes that what happens is that teens and young people feel much higher highs and much lower lows than adults do. This is why we have to watch them so closely for mental health signs. You know, they get, they're gonna get that much more anxious about something that wouldn't phase an adult. They're gonna get that much more depressed about something that an adult would take its stride, simply because we have different brain stages of development happening. You know, the adult is mature and the adolescent is in development stage. So they're very sensitive, as we already talked about, especially to their peers, which is something we're going to talk about um, further on in the course. So with adolescents, one of the things that we could really harness if we knew more about it is that the opinions of others matter a great deal, especially the opinions or the approval of young people. And so on top of all of this, young people feel compelled, as we saw with the two tragic driving stories, to have, they seek intense and exciting experiences that come from driving quickly or whipping around a corner or slamming on the brakes or whatever it is that they're doing in the car that's not safe. So adolescents, they are people who take risks and they are also sensation seeking. It's natural, it's evolutionary, but it's what makes them bored in classrooms if we're not tapping into that, that risk-taking, emotional part of their brains, and it puts them at risk when they're driving. So, I mean, just a quick takeaway you can take even from this section here, if we want our, our students to be completely mesmerized in class, we've got to tap into this, this emotional part of their brain because it's driving them. We make things relevant to the emotional part of their brain or we make things highly relevant to the approval and opinions and relationships that peers are having with one another. That's where we're a lot more likely to, to get them to learn key material. So we have to manage in some way this emotional roller coaster that is at work in our young people. And so remember when Dr. Steinberg described the adolescent brain as having a sensitive gas pedal, he also said that during the brain, this stage of brain development, young people have bad breaks. So we talked about the sensitive gas pedal as the limbic system, the emotional center of the brain that's very aroused. 
And when uh, Dr. Steinberg is talking about the bad breaks, he's talking about the prefrontal cortex, which is located behind the forehead. And it's this, it's the last part of the brain um, to develop. And it's located, um, it's located here as opposed to the central part of the limbic system. And it's really the part that executive of the brain, it's the part that manages things. Um, and it's the last to develop, unfortunately. So this is the site of self-regulation. The prefrontal cortex is what thinks about consequences and what looks to the future in the brain. And neuroscientists often refer to the prefrontal cortex then as being the executive center of the brain, as opposed to the emotional center of the brain, which is the limbic system. So this part of the brain does not become fully mature until 24 or 25. And this is why to adults, teens and young people seem so thoughtless and so impulsive. It's not their fault. The part of their brain that would make them thoughtful and, and not impulsive is under construction. So Dr. David Walsh titled his book on adolescence, What Were You Thinking? And he goes on to say, that's the whole point. Adolescents aren't thinking. They aren't being rational. They aren't looking to the future. They aren't weighing out pros and cons. And it's not their fault. The mature, thoughtful, rational, factoring in the future part of their brains is under development. So what we have to do as, as teachers and parents and frontline workers with young people is we have to help them. We have to be the ones that put on the brakes for them. So adults need to support young people up until the age of 24 or 25 until the brakes of their brain or the prefrontal cortex of their brain is fully developed. So the lessons in this course are designed to highlight the danger adolescents are in. We're gonna keep circling back to that due to their, their stage of brain development. And we're gonna dramatize this by um, by looking at how much danger they're in when they drive. So we're gonna dramatize the teen brain in this way um, to provide insights for teachers and parents and frontline workers with youth, and then ultimately provide strategies to help young people themselves and all of us who work with them to survive this challenging, but it, it's also a very exciting time um, in their brains. So to return back to this key point, young people's brains are hypersensitive to environment. And that's one of the quickest, easiest ways to understand neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is, um, it's, it's actually um, sort of still seen as a kind of a breakthrough insight on the part of neuroscientists. They, they used to think that the brain was hardwired and it was, you were born with a certain brain. And now they understand that it's incredibly dynamic and unbelievably impacted by environment. So brains change based on how an individual leaves their life, like what they practice, what they do, and how much is going on in their environment that is then impacting their brain. So what's exciting about the neuroplasticity of young people, which is off the charts in, in comparison to adults, adolescents have intense neuroplasticity. So it means they're very creative. They learn extremely fast. They can problem solve in innovative ways. This is why they're so fast with technology. It's much harder for older people to figure out some sort of new device. Young people, they get it like this. So the more we harness these strengths, of the adolescent brain in our classrooms, the more the neuroplasticity gets channeled then into positive learning environments or experiences that'll serve our young people and keep them engaged despite the near irresistible draw to risk taking and reward seeking. Again, if we're working with the adolescent brain, well, why don't we make our classrooms about risk taking, intellectual risk taking, emotional risk taking, social risk taking, 
And, and why don't we make our classrooms all about rewards? You know, um, acknowledge young people for taking risks, emotionally showing up, problem solving in new and different and risky ways. Hopefully, one would assume um, this, would, this would fulfill a lot of that impulse in the brain and maybe make our young people less likely to, to seek these experiences outside the classroom. So we're gonna talk about how far too often our classrooms aren't constructed that way um, when we look at Dr. Francis Jensen's work, but let's just stay with that for now. So the more teachers and parents and frontline workers with youth know about adolescents' brains and the way they're developing, the more they can manage them insightfully and sensitively. So the goal is to work with the adolescent brain, not against it. The cultivation of essential skills then must begin with techniques to moderate or balance the emotional highs and lows. Later in the course, we'll look at mindfulness, we'll look at exercise and the research on these things, we'll look at empathy and visualization as techniques to calm the emotional storm. So we're just introducing the concept now. Rest assured when we get to the later chapters in this course, we're gonna really detailed, intensive look at, okay, well, what do we do now? We know all this. How can we cultivate these types of essential skills? The more young people are aware that their prefrontal cortex has to get stronger, is under construction, needs to become the, the guiding force in their brains to keep them safe and, and also with an eye to the future, the more that they're aware, the more they can be supported to enhance the critical role the prefrontal cortex has in putting on the brakes. I mean, just do a quick review with yourself. Do you, if you're a teacher, do the teenagers in your classroom, or if you're a professor, do the university students in your classroom, do they know about the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex? Do they know that their prefrontal cortex is under development and is gonna put them at risk? I don't, I certainly never talked to my classes about these things um, when I was teaching. I didn't know anything about them myself. And you know, here I was a teacher, I was a professor, I was in the business of learning, in other words, working with brains but I didn't know really anything about brains until I started doing this research. And that's why I'm so excited about sharing what I discovered with you. So we need our, our young people to be much more aware of what's going on in their brains. Neuroscientists who are focused on how youth learn, they use the term scaffolding in order to describe the important role of teachers in helping young people to be challenged but never overwhelmed. And I'm sure scaffolding is a term that you've heard and you, and you actually use these strategies in your classroom. Um, you can find scaffolding talked about um, back in educational psychology. You can find it talked a lot about by people, leaders in the field like Dr. Carol Dweck, who talks about growth mindset. Again, I'm sure you all know about that and we'll briefly look at it, but if you haven't read Carol Dweck's work um, on growth mindset versus fixed mindset, it's critical super important and it's it's geared to working with brains as opposed to against them so again we're going to keep really foregrounding this concept of safety because this is high stakes so not only is it high stakes out on the road it's also very high stakes even in a classroom because we have to factor in the emotional instability of this phase of brain development and so an, an essential skill for a teacher to cultivate and a parent to cultivate at home as well, or a social worker to cultivate when working with a family or a, a school or something, is this absolutely important um, creation of an environment where young people have emotional and social safety. Now we know in the school system, we really don't have nearly enough 
emotional and social safety. We have what's called a bullying epidemic and many children stay home. Uh, teenagers and youth stay home from school or they drop out of school because it's not safe and it's not emotionally um, caring and consistent and calm. And so these are the sorts of things that we can change. So, you know, there still are some of the teachers out there, there are still coaches out there or parents who believe that the use of mockery and humiliation is really uh, designed to build resilience. You know, you break the kid down so you can build them back up in a, in a tougher version of themselves. And unfortunately, from a brain science perspective, um, it doesn't work. It does just the opposite. It's very, the research is very clear that it actually does harm to brains. So this is what I mean about taking a look at some of our entrenched belief systems in the education world or sport world even, and, and starting to say, you know, put it into dialogue with what the neuroscientific research and the psychological research and psychiatric research tells us about brains. And especially the fragile brains, the vulnerable, vulnerable brains of adolescents. It's not the same as adults, you know, maybe, you know, you take a, an adult, you break them down and build them back up if you want, but yet don't want to be doing it to an adolescent at all. So what the research shows is that emotional threats actually can do significant harm to developing brains. So in further, uh, more advanced courses, we will really uh, look at the research on bullying and emotional abuse or psychological abuse, verbal abuse, and what the research shows it does to brains, which is pretty disturbing. It's not at all building any grit or resilience or toughening anybody up. It's doing serious harm to brains and they can see it. And they've been writing about it in peer reviewed journals lots of replication of data and consensus. So one of the best ways to create a safe emotional social environment is by using scaffolding, as we said. So an educator who is mindful and intentional about scaffolding ensures that students are challenged to achieve what they can, constantly being just gently pushed in terms of their own learning trajectory, and it's very individual, every single brain is different, um, students should also be supported in such a way that they can always be successful. They can see their progress and they never are made to feel like they're failures and they should never be demoralized in their school settings. And you know, maybe they only make a tiny um, impact on their learning on a particular day. That's still, that's still reward material. That's fantastic. That's exciting. That's growth mindset. Continued work, continued practice, that is what's gonna make the brain stronger and better. And that's really what we're always encouraging. So let's just end on growth mindset. We talked about it briefly. It's really important during this critical phase that students understand that their brains are developing and that their brain's way of learning, same with adults, is to make mistakes, to correct, to make adjustments, to make more mistakes, and so on, until the brain has learned what it needs to learn. So. You know, when you hear a teacher or a coach or a parent lambasting a kid for making mistakes, and that could be mistakes in the social emotional world. It could be mistakes with risk taking or reward seeking. It could be mistakes with this uh, restlessness or drive to get out, or it could be academic or sport or arts mistakes. You don't want to ever hear any adults who uh, use put downs or how could you have done that or what were you thinking? None of that makes any sense to the adolescent brain. All it understands is mistakes are the way it learns. And it, it's a self-correcting thing 
and even more so with the help of a mentoring adult. So teachers who encourage this kind of growth mindset, and the research is very clear on this, and growth mindset, as we said, is Dr. Carol Dweck's terminology, what they're learning to cultivate is the essential skills of um, brain error, brain correction, effort, work, practice, deliberate practice, repetition, this will serve them for the rest of their lives. If they believe in their brain's capacity to learn and to correct errors and to get better and stronger, they sky is the limit for what they can do. And this is backed by extensive research. Okay, so that was a lot of information. I'm sure you would like to take a big rest. <laughs> Whenever you're done, come on back and we will look at the second lesson for this chapter. is the second lesson in chapter one and the focus is adolescents being an at-risk population. So before we start to talk about the dangers of hot cognition, we'll just do a, a quick review of what we've covered so far. So in the introductory lesson, we talked about the adolescent brain as being under development and therefore at risk. So it's not just at risk of being disinterested and disengaged at school, it's also at risk of, for self-destructing. And that's why we're using throughout the course the sharp reminder that adolescents don't mean to behave the way they do. In fact, they are so overwhelmed by their adolescent brain that they are at, at extreme risk for fatal car accidents. They're at extreme risks for committing suicide. These are very painful truths um, that are not talked about very often in my experience at faculty meetings or professional development days. Um, but really, if you think about it, they're at the very heart of what teachers and parents and frontline workers with youth are facing. And we really need this information when we are working with adolescents. And they need this information too. We become the conduit for them to understand what's going on in their brains and how much they're at risk. I don't think we tell them nearly enough. So the essential skills that we covered last lesson was essentially about capturing the emotional energy of young people in their learning experiences, making things emotionally relevant to them because that very activated limbic region of their brain is so aroused that if we can tap into it and get them excited about academics because it's linked to their emotional world, that's going to be much more effective. That's called working with the adolescent brain, not against it. We, we talked very briefly about mindfulness, um, being able to calm um, emotional ups and emotional crashes um, that are very typical of the developing brain. It's not somehow your moody teenager is trying to make you miserable. They can't help it. Um, and we're, we're going to talk a ton more about mindfulness. We, we're just glancing at it right now. We also talked briefly about the technique of scaffolding, sort of a reminder because most teachers, I certainly think, um, are aware of it. Parents hopefully as well, and frontline workers, um, is something that we adults can use to keep young people challenged, always challenged, and pushed to take intellectual or emotional or social risks, um, but they're never overwhelmed and they never feel demoralized or like failures. Um, that can be really harmful for them and we're always trying to think about what is the best environment for their brains. In the following lesson, we're gonna look at the ways in which the adolescent brain needs to learn the same lessons over and over again. They, they're not forgetting what we teach them on purpose. And their, their goal is not to be dismissive of the hard work that we teachers put into their lessons or parents put into their teachings. Um, adolescent brains in particular will forget. 
And it's because their brain is a lot more focused on the goals of evolution, namely procreation and survival um, in, in a very primitive sense, not in a driving a car sense. Um, that's much more important to their brain than the goals of academics, which don't make a lot of sense to them because their prefrontal cortex is not developed and it looks to the future and understands that academics are important and school is important and so on, but to the brain, not so much. So the key takeaway from this lesson is going to be looking at the challenges of hot cognition and strategies that we can then use for teachers and parents and frontline workers with youth to manage hot cognition. So one of the questions we need to ask is, are adolescents safe once we've informed them about the risks? And we're going to talk a bit more about this. So let's use driving quickly as an, an example again. You know, um, a, a school that I, schools I worked at here in Canada, they had a fabulous program that youth would go to for the day. And they had actors and they recreated car crashes and they gave them statistics and they made them emotionally engage. And, you know, they really laid out the danger that young people were in on the road. Well, it's, it's well-meaning and um, the people that put it together are, are just so keen to see young people be safe, but they're not factoring in hot cognition and they're not factoring in brain development. The brain doesn't learn in one day. We don't teach math on one day and we don't teach Spanish on one day or French because the brain doesn't learn that way. It has to learn over and over and over again. Another quick example for us is Think about the teenager who crashed into the tree with his fancy sports car and the parents went, well, he's learned his lesson. He's totally fine now. He'll never make that mistake again. Two weeks later, he kills somebody doing the same kind of driving antics as before. Hot cognition can override any well-meaning lesson we put there. So instead of working against hot cognition because they can't help it, it's part of their brain development, we have to find a way to contain it or work with it. So as you know, that's the goal of this course. So in answer to our question, are adolescents safe once they know about the risk? Absolutely not. They are not. So knowing about the risk is not enough. Parents and teachers have to press reset with the adolescent brain over and over again because its tendency is to seek rewards, take risks, pay excessive attention to peers, forget long-term consequences and be impulsive, even though they know better. So what we want them to do ultimately, and like I've said, we're gonna do a lot more on mindfulness and exercise and other strategies later. Um, but for now, let's just get this idea in our heads that really what we want our young people to do is to put their mind in the driver's seat, not their developing brain. The developing brain can be the engine that powers their learning trajectory in their life and, and their successes, that's great. But they never want the brain, the developing brain of an adolescent, so ages, you know, when they get their license as early as 16, say up until 24, 25, that brain should never take the driver's seat. The mind should. So young people tend to conflate or mix up their brain and their mind. And teachers can do a, you know, a mini lesson or even a whole lesson asking students to reflect on and define the difference between the brain and the mind. Chances are really good they don't know. And that's a shame. That's the, you know, the fault lies with us. There's a ton of information out there on the absolutely diverse world of the adolescent brain and what you can do with training a mind to be mindful. So teachers, especially by using mindfulness, can teach young people that their brains and minds belong to two different but related realms. And the goal is to teach them to integrate and to have the brain and the mind working together and not against one another. I'm going to talk a ton more about that.
One of the ways young people understand very quickly this concept of their brain is to make them to have them think about their brains as if it's like a muscle. So as they will know instantly, they, they know a lot more about their bodies than their brains usually. Um, how do you make a muscle strong? How do you make it really, really effective and precise if you're playing a sport or playing an instrument? How do you make your hands really precise when playing the piano? Um, and how do you have a muscle or your fingers optim working your optimum capacity? Well, you have to undergo hours and hours and months and months and years and years of training. Young people understand that. Any young kid who's a brilliant athlete, any young kid who's fantastic at, um, at an instrument has been practicing. It didn't just happen to them. They didn't go to a workshop on one day and learn how to be brilliant at something. They put in the hours. Young people understand that right away. Tell them that they can do exactly the same thing with self-regulation and how they want their brain to operate. So really, this should be an integral part of school. This should be a critical part of learning in the home, of the learning that takes place with frontline workers with children. They need to know that they have the power to work out their brain and that it will get good at what they want it to get good at by practice. And this, again, this is Carol Dweck's um, whole concept around effort. It's all about training young people to understand that it's up to them, that they can put in the effort and do miraculous things with their brain power. So young people need to know that the brain responds to training and workouts, just like the body. But you know, how many young people will say to you, hey, I'm, I'm just gonna go to the brain gym. I'm going to the brain gym to really work out on uh, putting my mind in the driver's seat because I don't wanna drive with my brain. Too risky, it's, it's so um, you know, out of control. And I, I know that I could be one of those terrible statistics with fatalities and I really don't wanna be, and I don't, I don't wanna kill anybody on the road either. So I'm, you know, three, four times a week now, I go to the brain gym and I work out on self-regulation. That's not language that we even have. And, and why is that? We have enough neuroscientific research that that should be part of young people's days. It should be how they train, how they improve the integration of their limbic system, the emotions, the gas of their brains, and the prefrontal cortex, the uh, brakes of their brains. What do we do? We just, we get them, give them a license. We put them in cars. It's crazy. So the fact that their brains are highly responsive to training and workouts is empowering for young people, for teenagers and, and young adults, because it means that they can put themselves very consciously, their mind into the driver's seat. They can work with their developing brain to learn to conduct themselves intentionally and mostly, most importantly, to keep safe. They can train their brain to get good at self-regulation, even though they're in a phase of emotional highs and lows, and even though they're drawn to excitement and adventure and risk-taking. And it's all about the prefrontal cortex. So, you know, get young people to put their hands on their foreheads as a very, you know, uh, a mnemonic gesture or a memory gesture to remind themselves daily over and over again the executive decision maker is sitting right there and the more they're aware of it talking to it working with it the stronger it's gonna get so the goal is really to help information not just academic information but emotional information flow into the prefrontal cortex more efficiently and more quickly so as a teenager goes through adolescence the prefrontal cortex is getting more and more connected to other parts of the brain. This is the big integration piece that happens during adolescence. And it gets more integrated with parts of the brain like the limbic system, 
the site of the emotional roller coaster during adolescence. Obviously, the more they integrate, the more the prefrontal cortex can start to have that dialogue with the limbic or the emotional part of the brain. Like, do you really think that's a good idea? Do you really need that approval? Do you need that quick fix of reward right now? Let's think about this. So you probably heard the expression, use it or lose it. We're gonna just briefly remind you about it. So during this time of, of brain development, the adolescent brain is undergoing intensive blossoming. That's the word that the neuroscientists use. It's going through intensive pruning. That's another word they use. And it's going through a, a pattern or a, a phase of myelination which we'll talk about in a minute. So neuroscientists use terms like blossoming and pruning because if you close your eyes for a second and try and imagine a neural network, to the neuroscientists, it looks like branches. You know, it branches out like a tree. The word they use is dendrites. And then they imagine that the cell's axon is like a root, which again is reminding them very much of a tree. So if a student is not using math, for example, the brain is gonna prune away the math neural networks because it doesn't think they're needed. And likewise, if a student is not using a second language, the neural networks for foreign language learning get pruned away. And this is why neuroscientists often advise, use it or lose it when they're talking about brains. If you don't use it, your brain's gonna prune it away because it doesn't think you need it. And the other phrase that you'll hear neuroscientists say is that the brain has limited cortical real estate. That means it doesn't have enough room to keep everything in it. So it has to get, it just gets rid of the stuff that it doesn't think is necessary. And the way it decides is how much you practice something. So for example, if I was a concert pianist, my brain would, would believe that the one thing I really needed was to be very good at piano. But it might cut out languages, self-regulation, um, any of those other aspects of the brain. So another expression you've probably heard that's used frequently by um, neuroscientists is what fires together wires together. So let's just talk about what that means for a second. What it means is that the learning a student repeatedly does at frequent timed intervals will get reinforced or wired into the brain. Every single time they fire up that neural network, it's gonna lay it down more firmly, more um, resiliently in the brain. So, I mean, when it's a life and death situation like driving, we've gotta teach our young people over and over again. We've gotta fire up the neural network over and over again about staying safe. We can't just have them do a one day workshop. It's not going to work. So writing a driving test and doing a set number of hours of practice or spending a day doing the workshop on the dangers of driving just is not enough. And it's all, of course, it's, you know, it's well-meaning and it's how we've done it in the past, but we also now have enough statistics to tell us it's not working. So we gotta press reset and, and factor in how their brains are learning. So it wouldn't be enough to learn calculus or Spanish or sports or arts, and it's also not enough for safety. So that's one of the big changes hopefully this course is going to activate. So what fires together wires together. Let's keep remembering that. When a learner uses a neural network frequently, the brain insulates it with myelin, which makes it a default go-to superhighway of information and learning. Myelin is, myelin is an amazing insulator that attaches to and encases frequently used or fired up neural branches and it helps information move far more quickly and efficiently. The more someone practices something, the more myelin builds around the part of the brain that they're working. And teens can put their minds into the driver's seat, literally and figuratively, by practicing, doing deliberate practice in mindfulness, 
which is shown by the research to link the prefrontal cortex to the emotional center, limbic system, and it keeps them communicating as best as possible even during this time of brain development. So again, as I've said, we'll go into more depth on that later in the course. The example neuroscientists often allude to um, in order to convey this and share it with regular people who don't understand the science as, as well as they do, they'll talk about a major study that was done of cab drivers in London. And they had to learn these elaborate maps. I don't know if you've ever been to London or seen their one-way street system uh, in the city. It's really quite something. And to be a cab driver there is like next to impossible. You have to be so good or you don't get your, your cab license, your taxi license. They took these cab drivers and they studied their brains in MRI scans and they found that the these drivers, these taxi drivers, had way more advanced and developed neural networks that have to do with geospatial reasoning than the rest of us and that part of their brain was highly myelinated. Another very well-known study that's often referred to is um, the neuroscientists looking at brain maps of violin players. And I don't know if you play the violin, but there's a huge amount of um, movement that you do with your left hand when you're a violin player. And what, what did they find in the brains? Not surprisingly, um, violin players had a much more myelinated part of the brain that had to do with directing the left hand and finger movements. So again, let's go back to this idea of our young people have a sensitive gas pedal, zero to 60 real quick, but they have feeble brakes, like the brakes of a jalopy or a uh, bicycle. So the problem for young people is that their prefrontal cortex, the brakes, aren't fully developed or mature, and they can't help that. And we can't speed it up. There's nothing we can do about the way in which the brain is developing. All we can do is try to work with it in a variety of ways that the research has shown appears to work, like integrating prefrontal cortex with limbic system through deliberate practice. So our young people, because they have this, this uh, you know, sensitive gas pedal, they're susceptible, much more susceptible than an adult is, to hot cognition, which is an unanticipated moment of emotional arousal. And this means that teens and young people struggle to regulate their emotions, and they struggle to regulate their impulsive thrill-seeking. So our teenagers and young adults cannot depend on their prefrontal cortex to rule out risky behavior. So what do we need to do but create contexts around them that keep them safer? So for example, you do not give a young person a, a souped up, super fast sports car. Doesn't matter how much you love them. Doesn't matter how much you think they learned their lesson. That part of their brain is going to override any of your lessons. So it's a matter of working with the brain, not against it. So the, the prefrontal cortex struggles in the adolescent brain because it's under construction to think about long-term consequences like accidents or injuries or jail time. The adolescent brain is not great at controlling adolescent impulses. It struggles in particular to resist peer influence. So let's look at a hot let's look more than at hot cognition and understand how it can derail young people um, before we put in the kinds of practices that are going to keep them actually safer on the road. So during later adolescence, self-regulation is improving. So in your early 20s, it's getting better. But the construction of the prefrontal cortex is very gradual. And young people in high school, therefore, and even university, suffer frequent lapses. So they learn and learn and learn. They get better and better and better. And it's two steps forward and then one step back. And this is why they need to be so careful to really avoid, as much as humanly possible, alcohol, stress, tiredness, and opportunities to take dangerous risks. Situations where emotions can quickly get out of control and, and situations where peer influence is a major player. And we're going to talk about all of those things in more detail. The adults in the world of 
of youth, so ourselves, teachers and coaches and parents and frontline workers with kids, counselors, social workers, we can mitigate these fraught situations. And we can also keep young people as informed as possible, informed about how to work with their brains and not let their brains take control. So self-regulation is very easily derailed in the adolescent brain because the prefrontal cortex isn't mature and as we've said before, and we're going to keep reminding you, this part of the brain, and a quick, easy way to remember it and think about it is, it's the brakes of the brain. It's the brakes of the self. Dr. Steinberg sees hot cognition as having a major impact on how young people act with adults in positions of authority, and the ways in which they can also be reckless drivers and their attraction to alcohol and marijuana. So due to the developing brain, Dr. Steinberg questions the ways in which lawmakers and enforcers even understand a young person's criminal responsibility. He explains that these are the situations that usually intensify the at-risk nature of the developing adolescent brain. They are the situations where it can be absolutely deadly to have a sensitive gas pedal and to have bad breaks. And I mean, that's important for frontline workers where for a young, you know, an adolescent brain that could just be an emotional, like, out of control situation for them. So although it can be really trying to parent or to teach an adolescent or to work with them, it's also clearly a time for adult intervention, structure and empathy. Teens and young adults are undergoing an immensely challenging, difficult time. And if you shower um, scaffolding and support and care and, and protectiveness around toddlers, you should have those same intense feelings for teenagers and young adults because they need as much protectiveness and scaffolding and care and empathy and, and that sort of containing um, adult support in order to survive even. So these are the moments when adolescent brains emotionally aroused, seeking rewards, wanting to take risks are ruled by the aroused limbic system and they make bad decisions and not just once they'll make them again and again and their brakes aren't mature enough to help them so brain scans force us or lead us or encourage us to have a completely different view of a young person and how they're behaving as dr steinberg stresses the brain science gives scientists the ability to describe the immaturity of the adolescent brain in physical, not just psychological terms. And this has been a breakthrough. We've been hearing from psychiatrists and, and educators and psychologists for years, at least 50 years about this kind of material. But until people started to be able, scientists were able to physically see it, we, we weren't ready to make the shift. And now that we have brain scans added onto all of this um, psychological research, it is time to make some changes. So the goal is not to judge or criticize young people that can't help it. The concrete evidence of brain scans has taught the experts that adolescents cannot help themselves. In fact, adolescents, as we're going to constantly reiterate in this course, can be a danger to themselves. And this doesn't absolve them of responsibility and accountability. That's not what we're trying to say here. If they choose to drive recklessly, for example, they have to be responsible and accountable. If they're going to get into a car at all, that's a life and death machine. And they've got to, they've got to be held responsible and accountable. But we also need to understand how to help and protect them as much as possible. We need to treat them as if the adolescent brain is a kind of handicap and create the safeguards around them that will keep them alive. So Dr. Steinberg advises parents and teachers to take a closer look at how society treats adolescents. Through his expert lens and what he sees in court and in his clinics and in his research, he sees that teens and young people are those who most need our protection 
And then this is the really sad part. He argues that at present in society, they're the least likely to receive it. So, I mean, this is why they have such high fatalities. This is why so many of them self-destruct. They need a ton more protection and they're the least likely to receive it. And it's because of something as silly and simple as the fact that physically they look like adults. They behave like adults. They're physically superior to adults in many ways. But what we can't see until non-invasive technology, and that's why there's no excuse anymore for us, what we couldn't see or can't see is that their brains are under development. Dr. Steinberg urges parents and teachers and lawmakers and policymakers to get up to speed on the research that can't happen soon enough. And this is why I'm doing this introductory course, because as he says, quote, much of our treatment of young people is completely misaligned with what science is teaching us about adolescence. So in this course, we're gonna to work towards bridging the gap between how we work with adolescent brains and what the neuroscientists have learned about them. So let's let's have some final couple of slides on cultivating essential skills. Really, this is a review of what we've learned. We've got to help young people and we need to remember at all times ourselves to recognize the difference between the brain and the mind. We need to put the mind in the driver's seat, the mindfulness part of ourselves in the driver's seat, our young people, and let the developing brain be what powers the car, but it's never driving the car. Understanding that the mind works like a muscle is very empowering for young people and they, they need to learn that the more they practice something, the more they commit to a fitness regime, daily exercises or, or daily work on a skill or behavior desired, the more it will be achieved. So this isn't just true for I'm going to really work out to become a better uh, gymnast. It also works for I'm going to work out really hard to become better at self-regulation. That also responds, the brain responds to those types of workouts uh, just like the body does. So what we want to do is help our young people build up the muscle of self-regulation. We know that hot cognition is going to pose an ongoing risk for the adolescent brain and it has to be addressed so that young people can anticipate it and put in the safeguards to keep it at bay. So we need to strive in our homes and classrooms and beyond to establish more alignment between what the neuroscientists know about adolescent brains and how we work with and treat our young people so that we are not participants in what Dr. Steinberg has identified as a really uh, kind of heartbreaking gap between young people who need a ton of protection and adults who have created a world where they're the least likely to get what they need. Okay, when you've absorbed all of that, come on back and we will launch into the second chapter. Oh, thank you.